The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 34, which can be found in page 825 of your pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's word. Thank you for that incredibly encouraging picture of Christ and his humility as the king who came not to be served but to serve, which is what we're looking at this morning. Uh, go ahead and find your Bibles again and uh, make your way back to Matthew chapter 20. We're looking at the passage we heard read a few minutes ago. When I, uh, when I sit down with an engaged couple who's getting ready to you know, commit their lives together to one another uh, in, a, in a premarital counseling type session, or, or even when a married couple comes to me looking for help, um, with their marriage, one of the diagnostic questions that I frequently ask is, what do you want from this relationship? What do you want out of this relationship? And it's a helpful question for several reasons, uh, partly because so many conflicts arise out of unmet and uncommunicated expectations. And so being able to, to put those on the table and talk about them is just a helpful thing. But more importantly, it begins to uncover the fundamental passions and longings and desires through which people often evaluate the success or satisfaction of their marriage. 
What is it that you're really looking for here? Because if you don't identify that and understand what it is, you're not going to be able to understand why you're so frustrated or disappointed at at times. And, And usually when I ask that question, the first answers I get are the ones they think I want to hear. You know, the kind of holy answers or whatever. But that's not what I'm after. I want to hear what is it that you're looking for from this relationship from the heart. What do you really want out of it? And it's usually to be happy. To be secure. Taken care of. Have my needs met. Provided for. To be loved. To be supported in my endeavors or helped to pursue my dreams. To be wanted, desired, cherished. And some of those longings are very natural, very healthy, very appropriate for a marriage relationship. Some of them will crush your spouse under the expectation because they're things that your spouse was never meant to be able to accomplish, but only God But whether they're healthy or unhealthy, whether they're godly desires or ungodly ones, they are the lens through which we often filter our satisfaction in a marriage relationship. And most of them have far more to do with being served than with serving someone else. With being made much of than with helping someone else To make much of God. Jesus asks this same question in a way this morning. Of two different sets of characters in our story. Two groups of twos. I don't know if you noticed that as David was reading the passage. You have two disciples and two blind men. Both recognize that Jesus is Israel's king. The disciples speak of his coming kingdom. The blind men call him the son of David twice. Both of them come to Jesus asking for a favor in light of his kingship. And to both of them, Jesus replies with the same answer. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want out of this relationship, if you will? One set asks for glory. They want to be served. They want to be made much of. The other asks for mercy. They simply want to be made whole again. Something that they know only Jesus can do. One set receives a favorable answer to their request. The other, a gentle rebuke and redirection. What do you want out of your relationship with Jesus? If he were to stand here right now and ask you that question, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? What is it that you really long for? Not the right answer, the one you think Jesus wants you to say, but the answer that really comes from your heart and the answer that actually shapes your evaluation of how satisfying, if you will, your relationship with Jesus is. What is it that you're looking for from him? And does that answer line up with his mission and the purpose of his kingdom? 
Those are the questions that this story forces us to wrestle with this morning. And so let's pray and ask God to search our hearts as we look at this story. Gracious Father, we do long to hear from you. Lord, when we gather, when we sing praise to you, when we do all of these things as a body, the greatest thing is to hear from you. We praise you that you've given us your word, and it's your word that we want to hear this morning. And Lord, we know that if we are to hear it, we need the help of your spirit. And so we pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to hear you, and that you would search our hearts as well this morning. Show us our deep longings, show us our desires, and and how they shape our attitude, our perspective, our, our satisfaction in knowing you, Lord. What is it that we really are looking for? And I pray that you would, as we look into your word and hear your voice, conform our hearts to long for you according to your gospel, according to your goodness, according to your purposes. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is the book we've been studying together for some time, and it tells us the true story of how God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we're nearing the end of that story, things are beginning to heat up. Things are beginning to get uh, a little bit more interesting as Jesus and his cross come closer and closer. He's beginning to approach Jerusalem, and he knows what that means. He's been trying to prepare his disciples for what that means for some time. He's told them twice already that when we get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And our passage this morning begins with his third such warning to that end. If you'll look at verses 17 to 19. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the way and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. That is what Jesus' kingdom is ultimately about. That is what he came to do. And that is what it will cost him to establish his rule, his reign on this earth. To give his life for us. That's where it's headed. And then to conquer death and bring new life and new creation through his resurrection. And so... As he's spent the last several conversations trying to help his disciples take that on board, that, that he is not the kind of king that they're used to in this world. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. It's different. He's been trying to help them understand how many who are first in this world, so the wealthy, the powerful, the haves, will actually be last in the kingdom of heaven. And many who are last in this world, the needy, 
the lowly, the have-nots, they will actually be first in the kingdom. And Pastor Bruce walked us through a couple of those conversations over the last couple of weeks. And yet, even as Jesus has tried to explain all of this to his disciples and to prepare them for what's about to happen and to help them understand how his kingdom is different, some of his disciples have become distracted and fixated on one particular comment that he made at the end of chapter 19, such that they pretty much haven't heard anything else he said since then. It's kind of like explaining to your kids that you know, we're going to run some errands, we're going to go to this store, and we're going to go to this store, and then when we're done, we'll get some ice cream for a treat. And all they hear is the word ice cream. And so when you don't show up at Dairy Queen for your first stop, you've got a mutiny in the minivan or something like that because they heard ice cream. That's, that's all they heard. That's kind of what the disciples are doing here. Back at the end of chapter 19, Jesus has explained to them how difficult it is for those who are rich in this world to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter asks him a question in verse 27. We'll see, we've left everything to, to follow you. What will we have? And, I mean, you can, you can hear that entitlement mentality in there already. This kind of, what's in, you know, we, we've done this for you. What are we going to get in return? What's in it for me? And instead of rebuking them like we would expect Jesus to do, he actually takes the opportunity to affirm the fact that God will actually reward their sacrifices in this world. He says in verses 28 to 30, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, so the new creation at the end of time, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That is an incredible promise. To enjoy all of the riches and blessings of God's presence so all of the promises and hopes of Eden and Canaan coming together at the end in a new creation for those who, who are going to dwell in God's presence forever and to enjoy him forever and all his blessings, that is an incredible promise. And among that, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are going to have a special role. But two of those disciples, James and John, seem fixated on a particular part of that promise. While Jesus is then talking about his approaching death and resurrection, they still have visions of thrones dancing through their heads. And, and, and more than that, more than the incredible promise, they want to know the seating order. You know, so, so who's actually going to be closest to Jesus and the power and the glory forever and ever? Amen. Who is it that's going to be the greatest they miss the whole first, last, last, first part. And so enter the mother's request. Uh, James and John, their mother, comes to Jesus. Now, whether this was mom's idea originally or whether the disciples kind of talked to her into going, we're not sure. But we know that the two are on board with the plan. And so mom comes to Jesus in chapter 20, verses 20 to 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons 
And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus asks the question, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want out of this relationship? And the answer is glory and power. They want to be served. They want to be made much of. Now, as is often the case in the Gospels, it's always really easy to pick on the disciples. Um, But their answers, when it comes down to it, are not very different than our answers. And so if Jesus were standing here and asking you, what is it that you really want out of this relationship, how would you answer? Think about that. Tell you what I would say. I want to feel successful. I want people to think that I'm doing a good job. I want people to think that my ideas are awesome. That I'm a good pastor and a good husband and a good father. I want people to see me in my relationship with Jesus and to think much of me because of that. That's what I want. And I want to be served. I want people to take care of me. I have an entitlement mentality. I want God to serve me. I want him to reward my sacrifices. You know, we've, we moved so far away from family for the sake of the gospel. I think because of that, our ministry should just flourish. You know, God would meet the needs. That's, that's how it should work. And I want people to say, wow, he's done a good job. What would we do without him? I want others to look at Westgate and say, wow, they are really getting it done for Jesus. Those are the, those, if I'm honest, are the longings of my heart. Not saying that's a good thing, but that is what it is. And, and that entitlement mentality applies not just in ministry, not just in, in, in those arenas, but at home too. <clears throat> I've talked about this before, but you know, when, when Chloe wakes up at 6 a.m., I expect that because I worked so hard this week and stayed up so late last night working on the sermon, that my wife, Carissa, should really be the one to get up with her. And you know, because I've got a busy morning, and I, you know, I really need my sleep, and you know, that's what I want. What do I want from Jesus? I want to be served. I want the kingdom, and the glory, and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for asking, Jesus. So so what would you say? What would you say to that question? My hunch is it's probably not that different than the disciples. And so often when we answer honestly from the heart, we don't actually know what we're asking for or at least what it will cost us to receive that. And that's what Jesus points out to James and John in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. 
He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus speaks of his mission here in terms of, quote, the cup. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup was a frequent picture of God's wrath against sin and rebellion. And so when, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane later, and he asks my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, that's the cup he's talking about. The cup from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Psalms that, that is to be poured out on God's enemies for all their wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The cup that God's enemies deserved that's now going to be poured out on his son in their place. The cup that he's about to willingly drink for them. Not my will, your will be done. That's the cup. That's the price of his kingdom. James and John fail to realize what it's going to cost Jesus to receive his glory. That there is a cross before the crown. As Matthew Henry once said, we know not what we ask. When we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for the grace to bear the cross in our way to it. So they hear Jesus talk about a cup and they're thinking the golden goblet of glory and power. And they're saying, yeah, we can drink that one. Cheers. But, but even though they don't have ears to hear it, Jesus affirms that they will drink his cup of suffering. In Acts 12, James is the first among the apostles to die because of his faith. John spends his days in isolation and exile on the island of Patmos because of his witness to Christ, we're told in Revelation. They will drink his cup. And yet to sit at his right hand and his left is not his to grant. The Father is the one who determines that. And so they will share in his cross. But this particular crown, that's up to the Father. And so the two ask for glory. That's what they want from Jesus. Though they don't realize what they're asking for. Makes you wonder, what about the rest of the twelve? What are they thinking about all of this? And verse 24 tells us, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were angry and upset. Probably not because of some pious attitude, how inappropriate was that, but rather that James and John beat them to it. That's far more likely. Because if they get the right and the left seat, that's going to cost the rest of the ten. Why didn't they think of this first? And so... Jesus calls all of them to himself and invites us to listen in. In verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Greatness isn't come, doesn't come from lording our power and authority over others in order to be served, but emptying ourselves just like Jesus did and becoming a servant. That's what greatness looks like. Following Jesus isn't about attaining power and glory for ourselves, but reflecting his glory through sacrificial service. That's what it means to follow him. And the problem here isn't merely having authority. Uh, Jesus promised his apostles a certain level of authority. They will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's not reneging on that promise. The problem is lusting for authority and power so as to use it for the sake of personal gain. What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get people to serve me, to lord that over someone for selfish reasons? Longing for it such that really Jesus and my relationship with him becomes just a means for my own ambition, my own aspirations, my own personal gain. We want to be served. We want to be made much of. We expect that if I follow Jesus, things should just now go well for me. Our lives should be happy and fulfilled. Parents will finally approve of us. Friends won't hurt us. Our careers will flourish Our kids will be successful and well-adjusted. And if that doesn't happen, then we become disappointed and disenchanted in our relationship with Jesus. We're more interested in being treated like we're first than serving like we're last. But following Jesus, isn't it's not about attaining power and glory for ourselves. It's about reflecting His glory through sacrificial service. As he says, as he's been trying to say over and over, the first will be last, the last will be first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And that means that my perspective on life has to shift. It's no longer to to go through life uh, making sure that I'm being served and that my glory is being advanced, it means that I can enter into a relationship not asking what's in it for me, what have you done for me lately, but how can I show the love of Jesus to this person? That becomes my dominating question and concern. How can I love and serve this person in such a way that they're going to see and savor Jesus more? That becomes the guide for my relationship. How can I help them to make much of God and His glory and so find their ultimate freedom and satisfaction in Him and not in all this other stuff? How can I love them and die to myself and serve them that way? How freeing would that actually be to live that way? To no longer be enslaved to the insecurity of making sure I'm getting the glory due my name. And instead, just gladly and lovingly lay my life down for others, no strings attached. It's not about what I get from this. 
just to love them because I love them and because Christ loves them even as he's loved me. How freeing would it be if that were the culture of our relationships in our lives? So what is it that keeps us from that kind of self-giving, sacrificial service? Why is that so stinking hard? Because it is. There's at least two things. First is the tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. To think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Look at the second story in our passage. The second set of twos, the two blind men on the road near Jericho. Verses 29 to 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. When you read that story, contrasted against verses 20 to 28, you realize who is truly blind and who is able to see King Jesus for who he really is. The two disciples asked for glory. The two blind men asked for mercy. They don't presume upon their association with Jesus. In fact, they have nothing in life they can presume on. Nothing that they can point to as collateral for their own significance or power. They're homeless, jobless, sightless. They have nothing. They are, in the fullest sense of the term, humble. The lowest of the lows. And yet they know their need, and Jesus responds to their need. He gives them mercy. He demonstrates for the disciples what he just told them his kingdom is about. Not being served, but serving. One of the reasons that we have such a hard time following that pattern, laying our lives down in service, is because we think too highly of ourselves. And so we expect that others should see us in our glory and serve us. We forget how lowly and needy we truly are apart from Christ. That that we're the ones on the roadside, hopeless and helpless, in need of Jesus. With our only hope being Jesus. That's who we are. And the reason we think so highly of ourselves is because we've taken our eyes Off of Christ. I've never been there. um, But I'm pretty sure that when you're standing in the Sistine Chapel. Surrounded by Michelangelo's incomparable masterpiece. Nobody asks the curator there if they can hang up one of their watercolors that they made in art class next to it. 
The only thing you're going to ask for when you're standing in that room surrounded by that glory is more time to look at it. Just give me one more minute to take in and be overwhelmed by the majesty and beauty of this. When we see Jesus for who he is, really, in his glory and beauty, nobody asks for their own glory. Nobody falls before him and said, yeah, I'd really like to to have my poster hung up next to you, to have my seat next to you. The only thing you can ask for is mercy. How can I, someone so pitiable, wretched, blind, and lost, ever hope to gaze on your beauty and be in your presence for just a minute? Just one more minute. That's what we want. We want mercy to be able to be in the presence of his glory. So the first reason that we have a hard time serving genuinely is that we lack the humility to see ourselves and our need for what it really is because we fail to gaze at Jesus' beauty and take it all in. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The second reason that we have a hard time serving sacrificially, which is also underneath the first, is that so often our desires and our longings don't actually flow out of the gospel, out of Jesus' purpose and mission and the goal of his kingdom. And that's what the disciples were missing. That's what Jesus keeps trying to point out to them through our passage. This is why he stopped them again in verses 17 through 19 and explained, this is what it's about, friends. My death, my resurrection. That's what the kingdom is about. It's, why, it's what he tells them again in verse 28 as he's explaining to them that the pattern of the kingdom is not being served but to serve. He anchors it in his own mission, his own character, his own purposes. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not the kind of king who comes in swinging the sword and stepping on the neck of his enemies, forcing them into subjection and slavery. That's not him. Jesus came in humility. He came in love. He came to die for his enemies to the glory of his Father. He did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited for selfish gain, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. But instead, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and and, and taking on human flesh, that he would taste the weariness that we taste, that he would feel the effects of sin the way humanity feels it, the full weight of it. And he humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the pattern of this king. He came to serve as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom means to buy somebody out of slavery. Notice that. He didn't come to serve, but 
He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to buy people out of slavery. He's not lording his glory and authority over others. He's showing us what the glory of God looks like by dying. He came to set us free from sin and evil. And the price he paid was his own blood on the cross. Every ounce of God's holy anger against all sin, all wickedness, all rebellion, everything that's wrong with this broken world, all our treason against God, everything in that cup of God's wrath, Jesus came to take it and to drain it to the dregs so that we don't have to. He took the wrath for us that we might be free. That is our security. That is our satisfaction. That is our identity in this life. That is the promise of glory that we get to share in in the end when Christ returns and Our lowly, humble bodies are transformed to become like his body of glory. And so that is the pattern of his kingdom. Not to be served, but to serve and to lay our lives down for one another in love. It's not about our glory. It's about God's glory. It's about being enthralled with and satisfied in him. Not not to be made much of but to make much of God and to help others make much of him, giving him the glory he deserves and finding all our security and significance in him. It's when we lose sight of the gospel, it's when we lose sight of the glory of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, that's when we invariably make the kingdom about us, about our glory, our power, We turn Christianity into a man-centered religion and then we approach it with an entitlement mentality. What have you done for me lately, God? But following Jesus is not about attaining power and glory for ourselves. It's reflecting his glory through our sacrificial service. When our hearts are satisfied in Christ such that our security, our, our identity, all of our need for love and acceptance and forgiveness is fully and forever met in him. That is what frees us to serve. To serve genuinely out of humility, not out of what I get out of it, but simply because I have been loved and so now I want to love you. Free to serve even at great personal cost. And so now I want to ask a different question. First was, what is it that you truly want out of your relationship with Christ? Now I want us to think as we close, what is it that I can give? How is it that I can die to serve others and reflect God's glory? You think of your friendships. How might you... Love one another, not because of what you're going to get out of that friendship, but simply what you can give to it, even if it costs you. And what does it look like to, again, approach a relationship asking, 
how can I love and serve this person in such a way that they're going to see and savor Jesus more because of our relationship? That they're going to be helped to be more enthralled with God because of this relationship. So loving isn't even just making much of someone else. It's helping them make much of God. That's where the satisfaction and joy is. Husbands and wives, how can we apply this? How, what, if, what if happiness isn't the ultimate goal of marriage, but holiness, reflecting the love and glory of Christ? What if my security and satisfaction doesn't come from my spouse, but from Jesus? How would that free me to love my spouse sacrificially? To outdo one another in showing love. Instead of, you know, passive-aggressively plotting in bed how I can hold out long enough so that Carissa gets up with the kids or, or waiting and busying myself with something else because I don't really want to do the dishes or fold the laundry. How, what, if, what if I made it my goal to beat her to those things? Now, she's in nursery right now, so there's a little... You'll have to hold me to account for this. But what if I loved her that way? What would that do? How would that be freeing? How would that show the love of Christ? Children, what might it look like to love and serve your parents this way, not honoring them because of what you want them to do for you, but because they're your parents and you love them and Christ loves them? Parents, What might it look like to serve our children not for what they've done or what they'll become, but because of who they are and because they're yours? Not so that you can get bragging rights over their successes someday, but to love them in such a way as to help them be enthralled with Jesus regardless of what life hands them. What would it look like to love them that way? And we can think about this in terms of our our work relationships. How, how do I serve and die to myself at work? Not because I treasure the bottom line or I treasure a, a promotion, but because I want people to treasure Jesus. What does that look like? How do we as a church love our neighbors and our communities in that way? There's a lot to prayerfully consider and think about. What is God, how is he at work in me to help me not go through life seeking to be served, but instead to glory in Christ and lay my life down gladly for him. What does that look like for you? Jesus is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But following him is not about attaining power and glory through that kingdom but reflecting his glory through our sacrificial service. So let's pray and ask for the grace that we need, not just to look for the crown, but the grace we need to bear the cross on the way to it. Gracious Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, so we pray for Westgate that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, 
that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Lord, would we see Jesus in his glory that way? Would we see ourselves for who we are? Broken, needy sinners. Yet sinners who have been forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Sinners for whom we can say, With Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has drained the cup. Lord, would that vision, would that security free us to die? To lay our lives down in service. We pray that that spirit of humility and service would mark every single one of our ministries. For those who are serving with our children, for those uh, who are working in our men's and women's ministries, our home fellowships, our prayer ministries, our student ministries, our care and our outreach ministries. Lord, every <clears throat> in every aspect, may we outdo one another in showing love. We pray, God, for our upcoming Vacation Bible School. And for the summer celebration, Lord, would you raise up the servants needed for those ministries? And would you be at work in and through them for the sake of your glory, God? Would you go before us by your spirit and would you prepare the hearts of children and families? Would you use us, not for our glory, but for your glory and the sake of your gospel? We pray for the upcoming Detroit trip as well, Lord, that you would give each team member a heart of joyful service as they come alongside Mac Avenue Church and in being a salt and light to that neighborhood. Lord, would you bind their hearts in a unity that comes from Christ? Anchor them squarely in Jesus. Take away the longings for self-glory. Open their eyes to see what need looks like and see, help them to see in what they see their own condition before you. And help them to see in the love that they see your love for them. Lord, we pray for all of our missionaries uh, for the same spirit of humility and service, God. We pray that you'd be with Ashley Mitchell as her time in Lebanon is growing to a close. Thank you for using her and for sustaining her and for expanding her heart for your glory among the nations. I pray that you be with Garrett and Julie as they're in Haiti, as they have literally left everything they had here in the States to go and love these orphan girls. Lord, we praise you for your recent provision for them. We pray for your continued grace and guidance. And Lord, we pray for those among us who are hurting, who are in need of your mercy in a tangible way. Lord, we praise you for John Quazo being with us this morning. 
after such a long road of recovery. Thank you that he walked in this room in his own strength this morning. When just three months ago, there was nothing like that happening. God, we give you great praise for his recovery. And we pray that you would continue to work in his body to heal and restore it. God, we pray for Davis Bates, that you would give him grace and health. Would you deliver our friends from cancer, God, for for Mary Boy and Ruth Hepp, for Bob Norcross, Bob French. Lord, we thank you that we can ask these things from you, not because we're so special, not because there's a glory we deserve, but because you are glorious and you have mercy. It's your mercy we need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.